All right, let's go Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Um, we've also got uh, um, some Bibles scattered around the room, some physical Bibles underneath the seats there. Um, if you... Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that one home. The reason for that is incredibly simple. Uh, the reason for that is we believe, like genuinely believe, that God uses His Word for uh, all kinds of important things. But the chief reason He uses His Word, the chief thing He uses His Word for, is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. Uh, we want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be defined by, shaped by, filtered through the lens of knowing Him. And so if the Scriptures are what He uses to do that, it's just common sense to be uh, digging into His Word as much as possible. Uh, it's the primary means by which He shapes us. And so uh, if we want to see good things in our lives affected by the Scriptures, then like press in a lot. So if you don't have a copy of your own, take that one. It'll be our gift to you, and it'll be the best part of my day. So Luke chapter 6. Um, we are a little more than halfway through now uh, our effort, our series that we've been uh, kind of digging into to take a closer look at what is commonly known as the fruit of the Spirit. Paul lists off nine things in Galatians chapter 5 that are, are things that, that God's people ought to be, uh, markers for our character, um, things that God's people look like. We've got a little tagline for the series, what God's people look like. The whole reasoning behind that is that these are the things that we can hold up and say, yeah, God's people look like this. Now, it's not an exhaustive list of what God's people look like. It's not a full summation of everything our, we are as kingdom citizens. In fact, we're going to get into some more stuff today, right? Uh, but it is a pretty good, uh, uh, pretty good list of who we're supposed to be. And so uh, we could say it this way. Uh, we're never less than the fruit of the Spirit. We may be well more than the fruit of the Spirit, but we're never less than the fruit of the Spirit. And that means that if we don't see these things growing in us, then it might be a giant like red flag for a huge problem. All right? That's the point of what Paul is saying there. And so uh, we've begun to kind of break apart this list and kind of look at each of these things in turn. Uh, but like we're going to assume that we're in a healthy place. And, uh, but this is your chance to to, to kind of flex your good church kid muscles. Right? Every week we, we ask our, our people to recite them back, right? And so, you ready to do this? I know you've been practicing. I know at least two people who have told me they have been practicing this list so they can rattle them off. So are you ready? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Ah, you good. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All right, one more time. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We're going to have a pizza party after we're done here. I'm kidding. Unless that would work. Would that work? I'm, I'm down for a pizza party. I'm just saying. <laughs> or tacos. All right. So we've got our nine fruit. We're getting pretty deep now uh, into this effort, into this series, looking at each of them in turn. But if you remember, we gave ourselves four rules to kind of guide, shepherd, I guess, uh, our pathway. That way we don't end up in a weird place with these things. And so four rules to kind of help us see the fruit as they ought to be seen. And the first fruit, fruit was really a simple one. It's that, it's that each of these things are, first and foremost, God's character. They're God's character long before um, they are things that He has called us to do. It's really just the fleshing out, the outworking of God's own good character in the life and actions of His people. In other words, He already is or has done or is doing everything He calls us to do. 
everything he calls us to grow in. The fruit aren't some arbitrary list that, that God just you know, thinks would be a better way for people to, you know, to represent him, but rather they are calling on me, they are calling on you to be more like God, which raises rule number two, because last time I checked, I don't have what it takes to be like God. How you doing on that? Maybe you're better at it than me. Maybe you got more willpower. Maybe, maybe you're just good at the being good part. That's not naturally in me. So rule two is that the fruit don't belong to me. They don't originate out of me. They are the fruit of the Spirit. They belong to the Spirit. And if I'm going to grow in these things, it must be because the Spirit grew these things in me. The Spirit is the one who produces these things as I walk in step with him. I don't just sit back and do nothing. I mean, that, that sounds like a fun deal, but um, I, don't, I don't have the power to produce these fruit, but I have been called to cultivate the growth of these fruit by crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires, Paul tells us. Meaning, the Spirit grows these fruit in me as I practice these things. As I put them into practice. And, and yeah, it's going to take a while. Last time I checked, fruit doesn't grow overnight. It takes a while. It's a slow process. The Spirit will get me there. He's good like that. He's promised to do nothing less than that. And so it's going to be a great day when he finally completes that work in me. I may not get to hang around for a long time before he completes that work in me. I think that's probably at the finish line. But it's going to be a fun day. But I don't have to merely wait for that fun day. There's a lot of good things that flow out now. And one of those things is rule number four, that these fruit all have a communal dynamic to them. So we need to look for them and see them. And so um, spiritual maturity will always bring blessing to everyone else around that spiritual maturity, both inside the church and outside the church. Other people will be blessed by the growth of the fruit in me. So we got our four rules. We got our, our, our guideposts for understanding these things correctly. So what's our next one on the docket? We've done love. We've done joy. We've done peace. We've done patience. What do we got next? Kindness. Kindness. So, so how does the, the world that we live in tend to define kindness? Well, the dictionary I use goes with the quality of being friendly, generous, and considerate. I got to admit, that sounds like a pretty good definition, right? The quality of being friendly, generous, and considerate. When it comes to words on a page, there's not much to argue with there, right? Anybody got a bone to pick with being friendly, generous, and considerate? Anybody want to be on the other team from that? When it comes to words on a page, that, that, that's a pretty good definition of kindness. Okay, 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 okay. So we got a good definition. What about the way it actually plays out in our world? Like, like, does, like the way that we as a culture tend to see kindness, does that match the definition that we like to ascribe to it? In a lot of ways, I think it kind of does. I think it kind of does. In fact, I, I, I maybe even go so far as to say that the fruit of kindness might just be the least misconstrued fruit on the list. I think that one's the closest to not getting absolutely beat up by the world that we live in. And obviously, I, I could still pick at it. I, I think kindness gets skewed by the same societal insufficiencies as a, a lot of other things in our culture. Namely, um, we, we retreat into defining things in their passive form, passive sense, rather than their active sense. 
We do this with all kinds of things. And so kindness uh, often gets confused with ignoring a problem rather than kindly engaging a problem. But kindness is far from the only thing to fall victim to that. Uh, we we kind of do that with a lot of stuff in our culture. Kindness is far from the only thing to fall victim to the idol of personal autonomy. And so if we ignore, I guess, that default kind of common to everything issue, I think by and large our culture tends to, to get kindness right. I think we can point to some good things probably, maybe even celebrate some, some good things. So does that mean we got nothing to talk about this morning? <laughs> y'all, y'all, y'all are smarter than the average cookie. <laughs> does that mean that there's not some other non-common-to-everything issue that we've got to deal with? All right, so let's look at our text. Luke chapter 6. What's the background we're wading into here? Well, the context of Luke 6 is complicated. Um, it's got a little bit of debate around it, and so it's commonly known as the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Plateau. And if you're thinking to yourself, huh, I've never heard those terms before, you're probably not alone. You're probably not alone. That's where some of the debate lies. Uh, Luke chapter 6 reads very, very, very similarly to big chunks of Matthew 5 through 7. In fact, uh, uh, the the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 through 7. In fact, um, the section that we're going to look at here in a second is almost verbatim what Jack read out of Matthew 5 just a moment ago. It's almost word for word. Almost word for word. And so that's caused a lot of people to point to Luke 6 and go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's just Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the same thing. Luke's just telling the story a little bit differently, but there's a couple of problems with that. One, Matthew's account of the sermon is much longer, much longer, and Luke includes some stuff that Matthew doesn't include. Uh, Now, the argument can be made, and I think in some cases is made well, the argument can be made that, that each writer, Matthew and Luke, were just taking this event that happened in real time and space, and they're writing their account of this event in a manner in which their specific audience needed to hear this piece and maybe didn't need to hear that piece. And so they're crafting their narrative in such a way that each of them is telling the story of what happened in their own way, right? And so we see that happen over and over again throughout the gospel accounts, and we point to that in a good way in a thousand locations. The, what is a problem with that, though, well, it's not a problem that each, each gospel writer has their own way of telling the story. What is a problem is that reality is way easier to write off as kind of like a stylistic choice when we're talking about a minor detail of a story that their audience either would or would not have thought important. It is much harder to justify when we're talking about what most people point to as Jesus' kingdom manifesto. Jesus' kingdom manifesto. The Sermon on the Mount, it happens immediately following Jesus' introduction into public ministry. And so he's taking that moment to declare and inaugurate the upside-down values of his good and eternal kingdom. He's declaring, this is what my kingdom values. This is who my kingdom people will be. And you don't get artistic license in that moment. You need to say what happened in that moment. Matthew and Luke don't get to adjust the story based on the needs of their audience. A second problem with seeing Luke 6 as Luke's telling of the Sermon on the Mount is that both accounts lean pretty heavily on the timelines leading up to and playing out after their respective event. And while the timelines include almost all of the same events, in Luke's account there are some things that are in a different order. 
And so, that's caused some people who are opponents of the Bible to point to what they see as a contradiction and say, I, I knew we couldn't trust it. One of them got it wrong. Either, either Matthew's wrong or Luke's wrong or both is wrong. Just toss it out. And that's the argument. That is literally the argument. So, so what's the explanation then? Because we, we want to believe that the Bible's true in all it says, right? Like that's important to us, I hope. It's important to me. It's important to a lot of people. So what's the explanation then? Well, in this specific instance, and it's not true of every instance of seeming contradictions, but in this specific instance, the explanation really is as simple as we need to be more careful in reading the Bible. That's, that's really the explanation in this moment. In Luke 6, verse 17, Luke tells us that as Jesus is coming down from a mountain, he starts teaching a group of people, and then he lists off who those people are. Some of those people in the group are people that Matthew, in his Sermon on the Mount, records as being present at the Sermon on the Mount. Some of those people in that group are people who seem to have just arrived. So there's a shift in the demographic of the group. Some of the people were on the Sermon on the Mount, and then some people were not there, but seemed to have just shown up. And so the most plausible reading, I think, of Luke 6 is that after Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, he starts making his way down the mountain. And some things in the timeline play out. And this new crowd of people begin to show up. And this crowd's got a little bit of a different demographic to it. This crowd's got more needs, and this crowd needs more things from Jesus. And so Jesus starts healing some people. And some more people start coming. And, and then the religious authorities that don't like that Jesus is healing these people, they leave. And so Jesus then re-preaches, it seems, a lot of the same stuff that he had preached earlier in the day up on top of the hill. So Jesus, Jesus preached two similar sermons. Is he allowed to do that? It seems, he, it seems he did. Matthew doesn't mention the second sermon, and Luke doesn't mention the first sermon. But it seems like they're talking about two separate but very, very similar events that happened at different times on the same day. Luke tells us in verse 17 that the geography of the place was level. So a lot of people have come to call this second sermon the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Plateau. So why is that important? Why, why, why do we take some time to, to deal with that? A couple of reasons. One, because there are too many stories floating out in the evangelical world about people deconstructing their faith. Maybe you've come across stories like that. I've come across, I mean, you sit in my seat, you come across lots and lots of stories like that. And so the, the question you always want to answer whenever you hear one of those stories is what exactly are they deconstructing? What exactly are they picking apart and then rejecting? And it's been my experience, I don't know if it's been your experience, but it's been my experience that the vast majority of the stories that I've come across in this instance are, are instances where someone grew up in a church environment that was really, really lazy in its teaching and reading of the Bible. And I mean epically lazy. Um, they, they never dealt with the questions that come from a straightforward reading of the text. And so if you, if you commit yourself to a straightforward reading of the text, you're going to have some questions. And they never dealt with them growing up. Never work through the struggles and the problems that people might have naturally when they come across these seeming contradictions. And so then they end up coming across one of these seeming contradictions and they have zero tools to deal with it. They haven't been taught how to handle the issue or look for the answer. And instead they just assume that people that had taught them otherwise were just lying to them the whole time. And they walked away. 
And again, maybe that hadn't been your the lion's share of the stories you've come across, but it's definitely been the lion's share of the stories I have come across. So hear me clearly. If someone chooses to walk away from the Bible here, it won't be because we haven't dealt with it. I promise you that. We're we going to talk about it. When it comes up in the text, we're going to talk about it. Now, <laughs> they may not like the answer. <laughs> they may choose to walk away after that, but that's not on us. That's not on me. We're going to deal with the problem and then let God be big enough to be God. It comes up in our text this morning, so we deal with it. But there's a second reason. second reason I think we need to bring up the distinction between the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain this morning. And it's because the demographics of Jesus' audience have changed. The demographics of Jesus' audience have changed. Between the mountaintop and the plateau, the audience has shifted from a predominantly middle and upper class group with a bunch of religious, Jewish religious authorities in it. And as he's come down the mountain, it's shifted to a predominantly middle and lower class group. And it seems like those religious authorities have all left. So why does that matter? Jesus has healed some folks. He's refined his crowd just a little bit. And then the perfect preacher re-preaches his sermon from earlier in the day. He gives a different version of the Beatitudes, still a manifesto of his kingdom. He, the tone hasn't changed. But this time he pronounces woes on anybody who would seek to try to find their identity somewhere else. And then, speaking to a crowd of people who would have seen themselves largely as the have-nots in their world, Jesus says this in verse 27. Verse 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. All right, can we just be honest here? Um, that's not, like Jesus' word here, that's pretty much the exact opposite of the way we tend to see our world work, right? Are we all on the same page about that? Or maybe I'm reading the temperature of the room wrong. Like, anybody here think we live in a culture that makes a habit of, like, actively doing good for those who hate us? Anybody see that on the news last night? Anybody catch that story? Anybody see an example this week of seeing someone be cursed and, you know, instead of like escalating that issue by doing a little cursing of their own, they blessed that person? And I'm not talking about the sarcastic blessing that I would go with. We don't have to keep picking on our culture. I, I think it's an internal problem to me. Like anybody find themselves in a situation recently where you're on the receiving end of some abuse or maybe even just something that was unfair, like obviously unfair, and, and your knee-jerk response in that moment was not to get even, it was not to make sure you got yours, but it was to pray for them? Anybody have a story like that they want to share from this week? So there is a giant disconnect not only between the values of Jesus' kingdom and the culture we find ourselves living in, but there is a giant disconnect between the values of Jesus' kingdom and the natural tendencies of each and every one of our hearts. Am I wrong? Jesus' commands, they strike us as preposterous. Like he's, like he's not even paying attention to how the world works, right? 
And they would have sounded just as preposterous to his audience on the plateau 2,000 years ago. First century Palestinian world, it, it may look a lot different than ours in a lot of ways, but the reason that love your enemies, do good to those who hate you sounds so impossible is because it's actually impossible. It's downright otherworldly. It's downright otherworldly. Jesus' kingdom manifesto, it stands in stark contrast to hearts that have been broken by sin. Which means that this giant disconnect is literally as old as the fall. Jesus steps onto the scene and says, this is what my kingdom will look like. This is who my kingdom citizens will value and pursue. But if doing and blessing and praying for the supposed bad guys in your story is kind of hard for us, um, some kind of burden for you, <laughs> well, Jesus turns up the dial another click in verse 29. He says this, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So he says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. That's fun. Anybody want to go practice that this afternoon? Pretty sure that we're not talking about minor assault here. We're this cheek-striking thing has more to do with insult and embarrassment. But seriously, Jesus? Like, you just want me to stand there and take it? Give him another opportunity? You want me to be a doormat for this person that's being rude to me or abusing me? You really, you really want me to do that? Are you serious? Jesus says that the posture of his kingdom citizens are to be forgiving when offended. And generous, even when others are looking to take advantage of you. And there is not a person in this room. I put myself in the front of the line. There's not a single person in this room that hears that and goes, yeah, sign me up. That sounds great. You know what I want more of in my life? That. Please sign me up, Jesus. It's exactly what I want to do today. This isn't a text in the Bible that people run to when they're having a hard day. Can we be honest about that? We run to lots of texts. This ain't one of them. It's not a text we cling to. This is a text that we often try to ignore or maybe get cute and explain away so we don't have to be obedient to. I'm guilty. To the one who takes your goods, do not demand them back. That sounds so incredibly unfair because it is based on an otherworldly understanding of justice. If you try to apply this world's understanding of justice to that command, it won't work. It's got to be an otherworldly form of justice. Jesus' kingdom manifesto, it stands in stark contrast to hearts that can only measure fairness by what we see with our eyes and can touch with our hands. Jesus steps onto the scene and says, this is what my kingdom looks like. This is what the citizens of my kingdom will value and pursue. And then Jesus says something in verse 31 that even the non-church kids can quote. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to who? To them. 
Hey, everybody, it's Luke's version of the golden rule. Woo! Which, by the way, Luke puts in a very different section of the sermon than Matthew does in the Sermon on the Mount. Another reason you've got to be very careful with your context here. Everybody knows the golden rule, right? Like, I remember being taught that when I was growing up. That was important to everybody. Even those, even those with no background in the Bible, no background in, in church life, they know what the golden rule is, right? We all get it. Yeah. So I, I told this story in here before, uh, but I know that there's a lot of people in our church family that are new. It's been a couple of years, or I think it was three years ago. Uh, I told this story before, but I think there's enough new people in here I can get away with telling it again. Um, back before Katie and I were married, I was, uh, I was in... I, I, led, I guess, a parachurch collegiate ministry uh, uh, on several campuses across New London, Connecticut. All right? uh, and so it was my job to hold Bible studies on all these different campuses and all that kind of stuff, and then have one in our home and all those kinds of things. And so uh, one of the campuses uh, that, we, that we worked on was a little small private school called Connecticut College. I think I got a picture of it here. Um, and so maybe I got a picture of it. I don't know. Sometimes our things work, sometimes our things don't. Hey there. All right, so I, uh, and I took this picture myself after a really snowy day. Um, it's, it's on the campus of Conn College is this incredibly gorgeous chapel. And that building is way bigger than you think it is. Those doors are like 20 feet high, all right, those wooden doors. All right, and so this is a gorgeous stone building. Uh, it sits right on the campus of Conn College, and we tried to do our Bible studies in there. It was this beautiful space. Uh, it was built originally as a Christian chapel, um, but then New England happened to it, and it's become, as the college got more and more liberal, it's become an all-faiths chapel, all right, all-faiths chapel. Um, and so... Uh, but it was originally built as a, as a Christian chapel. And so th- once you walk through those incredibly gorgeous wooden doors, there was a poster hanging in the entryway. And I think I got a picture of that too. Um, this poster right here. I know it's small, uh, but I wanted to get the whole thing. This poster was like a three foot by four foot poster. So it's huge. It was right in the entryway of this incredibly gorgeous chapel building, the All Faiths Chapel building at Conn College. And so um, the point of this poster point of this poster hanging in the entryway of the All Faiths Chapel was to try and show that the golden rule, the gold standard of Jesus's earthly teaching, right, was trying to show that the golden rule kind of existed in every single expression of faith. And so therefore, we have a lot more in common than we have apart, and we should just drop all of our blind dogmatism. That was the point. When you walked in the door of the All Faiths Chapel, you were met with the message of, we're all just the same. We all basically believe the same thing. Well, I'm certainly no fan of blind dogmatism. It's not really my game. Um, This poster drives me absolutely bonkers. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of hate this poster. And it's not because it tries to pick a fight. It's because it's nothing but blind dogmatism. Like nothing but pure and unadulterated blind dogmatism. So let me read some of the ones. I've got them written down here so I can actually read them because even I can't read them from this part. I'm getting old. That was funny. (laughs) So some of the ones on the list. Judaism. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. Sounds good. The listing for Hinduism. Do not do to others what would cause pain to you. Buddhism. Treat not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Confucianism, do not do to others what you do not want done to yourself. Even Zoroastrianism makes the cut. 
Do not do to others whatever is injurious to yourself. Now, those are some of the closest ones on the list to the golden rule. <laughs> there are some others on there that it was pretty obvious that they just tried to shoehorn them in so that they can say that they put them on the poster as well. Um, so, uh, like, native spirituality is the very bottom one, right at the bottom of the circle. It says, we are as much alive as we keep the earth alive. Unitarianism is just to the, the right of that. It says, we affirm and promote respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. This tells me that whoever made the poster, despite, despite what their intent was, and maybe it was genuinely in an effort to try to bridge some divides, it tells me that whoever made this poster doesn't actually understand the faith systems that are on it. And we're maybe hoping that people wouldn't actually read it. So what's the core problem with this poster? I mean, are, are they just trying to, you know, bridge the divide? Like, we, we can all get behind that, right? Especially in an all-faiths chapel, this needs to be a building for everyone. I, I kind of get that instinct. Um, why, would I, why would I argue that this is blindly dogmatic? A couple of reasons. One, because several of the ones I read don't even come from the source documents of those faiths. Um, most of them are quotes pulled from teachings and commentaries on those faiths trying to summarize those faiths. That's not the same thing as the Lord of that faith saying, this is what my kingdom will be. Those are different things. Um, and many of those commentaries are actually widely out of step with the largest branches of those faiths, meaning that they pulled quotes from people that those faith systems would actually point to and say, yeah, they don't have good theology. Is that a problem? It's probably a problem. What we're talking about here is somebody standing outside of those belief systems saying, yeah, they're all basically the same, while actively ignoring the core teachings of all of those belief systems. That's not humility. That's not peacemaking. That's actually an act of extreme arrogance. Extreme arrogance. That's, not, that's someone believing they know better while refusing to listen to those faiths actually describe themselves. There's a second reason that this poster and the assertion that all faiths are, you know, are essentially the same drives me bonkers. Um, it's because every single one of the quotes we just read are in the negative tone. Did you catch that? They're all in the negative tone, meaning don't do things you don't want done to you. There's a selfishness resting at the very bottom of every single one of those quotes. It's buried in all of them. But if you weren't paying attention, that's not what Jesus said. Look at verse 31 again. And as you wish that others would do to you, what does he say? Do so to them. That's not the same thing. That's not at all the same thing. Jesus does not command us to avoid doing fault. He does not command us to, to think about how our actions might affect some people and avoid the things that we wouldn't want done to us. That's not the same thing. His command is for us to actively do good. It's to take the things that we do want and go do that thing for others. Those are worlds apart. I haven't read the one for Islam yet. It comes the closest to what Jesus actually says. Um, 
The entry for Islam on the poster says, wish for others what you wish for yourself. That one's in the positive sense. But last I checked, um, wishing good for someone isn't as righteous as doing good for someone. That quote doesn't come from the Quran. It comes from the Hadith, the sayings of Muhammad. And so I'll just say it out loud. Jesus' commands are better than Muhammad's. Period. I don't want wishful thinking. I want good done to me. And I don't want to be the type of person that has wishful thoughts. I want to be the one who does good. Those are galaxies apart. Jesus' kingdom manifesto stands in stark contrast to even the best teachings and aspirations of false faiths. All day, every day. Jesus steps onto the scene and says, this is what my kingdom will look like. He steps onto the scene and says, this is what my, the citizens of my kingdom will love and pursue and chase after in my name. We, keep, we can keep going. Jesus does. Look at verse 32. And if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. All right, so Jesus says, hey, listen, I know you're thinking that you can, you know, probably get behind this whole pay it forward, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of worldview, but that's not what I'm talking about. Even sinners, even those who don't belong to Jesus' kingdom, they think and see the world in terms of I'll help you if you help me. I'll go ahead and scratch your back, but you better return the favor later. Even sinners, even those who don't know Jesus, think and see the world in that way. No, even those with inherently selfish value systems get that piece right. But then there's a giant but that comes in verse 35. Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Jesus says that citizens of His kingdom see and operate on a different level than the rest of the world, period. They see and operate on a different level than the rest of the world. We love, and we do, and we lend, not expecting anything in return. And then Jesus gives us three reasons for why we do that. Did you catch them? The first one is that our reward will be great. Our reward will be great. And I'm sure some of you are probably thinking, I don't know, Stephen, that sounds like a pretty selfish reason. I like great rewards. When we define our reward by the way Jesus has already used the phrase in his sermon. We didn't start reading the Beatitudes, but back in verse 23, we're told that our reward is a heavenly one. It's not an earthly reward, it's a heavenly reward. Reward. And so our calling to love and to do and to lend rests upon a trust that our promised heavenly treasure is better than any temporary return we might chase after today. Any temporary return on an investment we might make today. The second reason, second reason that Jesus gives us is, is that when we do what he's called us to do, we'll be, we will be seen as sons of the Most High. Does that sound like a win? Does that strike us as a better 
return on our investment than whatever it cost us to get it. We'll be seen as sons of the Most High. In other words, when people see us do what Jesus has called us to do, we'll stand out like a sore thumb. We'll be rightly seen as those who belong to His kingdom. They, they, they can't help but see it in a world that's busy chasing after that temporary return. There's a third reason. Third reason that Jesus gives, and I'll go ahead and plant my flag here. I, th I think it's the best reason. I think it's the best reason, the most important reason. He says, for he, in other words, the most high one, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Hey, everybody, we finally made it to our word for the day. <laughs> we finally found kindness in the text. It's always there. I, didn't, I wouldn't have picked it otherwise. Will thinks it's funny. Jesus gives some reasons for why his people are astoundingly generous and patient and forgiving. And one of those reasons, I would argue the biggest reason, is because it models the kindness of our Father. It models the kindness of, our, of the Father. When, when we are kind to others, especially undeserving others, we illustrate who God is toward the undeserving. And it's here. I think it's right here that we finally see the ultimate weakness of our world's understanding of kindness. See, for all the good and correct things that our culture might stumble into about kindness with its understanding of kindness, what it will always lack, what it cannot help but fail to replicate, is the foundation, that kindness that goes any deeper than mere human will. A determination to value kindness as a better option than the other options available. I, it's a choice to be kind in this moment. But for the Christian, kindness is rooted in the character of God himself. It is aimed at eternal promises awaiting us. And it is extended to those who deserve kindness as little as I did. As little as we all did from an infinitely righteous God. That means that we can probably deduce two incredibly massive truths from this. One, we ought to expect that kindness born out of human will, it will always eventually fail. We kind of have to expect that it's coming. Um, it shouldn't surprise us when someone's limit for kindness finally runs out because the well only goes down so far. Second thing we can do, deduce, though, is that as Christians, we don't have the same excuse we don't get to blame the, the faultiness of the well. The well is infinitely deep. The well is infinitely deep. And so we ought to literally be the most kind person in the room in any given situation, period. Why? Because we, we received an infinite kindness already. When we find ourselves in a moment when that's not true, it demands repentance from us. Not just a, oh, I messed up on that one, I'll try to do better. No, it demands repentance from us because we have grossly misrepresented our good king. And Jesus doubles down on that reality in verse 6, our last verse for the day. says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Follower of Jesus, you have received an incalculable amount of mercy. Therefore, be merciful to others. That's Jesus' command. 
There's no think about it, parse it out to mean something else. No, you have received mercy, therefore show mercy. A failure to show mercy and kindness is a failure to understand the mercy and kindness that has already been joyfully shown to you. So how do we, how do we apply this you know, biblical definition of kindness to its application as a fruit of the Spirit? Like That's what we're aiming at this morning, right? So we, we got our four rules, and we got our four rules on purpose. Rule number one, character of God before it's a calling, right? Kind of literally everything we just talked about. <laughs> that was not hard. I'm really hoping that that's a theological truth that is buried as deeply as possible in us before the end of the series. There's a reason why we're hammering it. <laughs> always has been true, always will be true. It's character of God before there's a calling upon us. The hard part, hard part, is that neither you nor I have what it takes to actually be as kind as God has been to us. That's a problem, right? If our calling is to be as kind and he, as he was and as merciful as he was, I don't have that in the tank, do you? I got a shorter fuse than he does. But then rule two comes to our rescue. The gospel comes to our rescue. Jesus knows I'm weak. He's already accounted for that. He's already paid the price for that sin. And he's also pleased to produce in me everything he wants to produce in me. And so otherworldly kindness is something that he's growing in me as I walk with him. Get me there. And in the meantime, I've been called to practice an otherworldly kindness to others. And each step of obedience, that eternal investment where I say, I'm not going to chase this, I'm going to chase that. Each step of obedience is another step closer to a functional righteousness that matches a little more closely my already declared righteousness. So I discipline myself to be kinder than I naturally am naturally prefer to be. I exercise that opportunity. What about our final rule, though? The community dynamic. Like, how, how does growing and maturing in the, the fruit of kindness bring blessing to others? And it's a common answer. It's the one that we've seen over and over again throughout this series. Just like joy, just like with peace, otherworldly kindness is always going to get noticed. It's going to raise some questions in some people. In a world that only has kindness to a certain point, when you blow through that point, people are going to pay attention. I'm going to ask some questions about why your well's deeper than theirs. And faithfulness to provide gospel explanations in that moment will be used powerfully for God's purposes every time. Every time. You show Christ-like kindness to those around you, and God will use it. Count on it. But while, but while we wait for those future opportunities, how, how can we respond to God's word this morning? Like, what do we, what do, we do with the text today? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is, is, is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text, right? And so this week, I think he's showing us that his kindness is not only infinitely bigger than we comprehend, it's also effectual to save. It's effectual to save. It is by his infinite kindness that I'm standing here today. And that I get to know him. So I think our response needs to take the shape of celebrating him and the kindness he's seen fit to show, despite how little I deserved it. We revel in his kindness this morning. I, I don't know how that needs to be fleshed out in your heart and life, but I do know that we provide this time as a specific moment to do something with that, and so use it. What if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? How, how can you respond to God's word this morning? Well, you respond by meeting Jesus. 
period. You respond by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that all people by default are separated from God relationally because of our sin and that we are owed the righteous and just punishment for that sin. But as the Bible clearly teaches, we see it this morning, that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That's you. He's kind to you. In another place in the Bible, we're told that he is rich in mercy and abounding with steadfast love, that he loved us with a great love, we're told, and so that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he makes us alive together with Christ by his grace. The Father sent the Son, the Son lived sinlessly, he died sacrificially, he was raised victoriously, and now he stands as the king who conquered Satan's sin and death, and he calls you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith. And listen, you can do that today. I'd love to be helpful to you. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's time that we give people to respond. I'll be down there if you want somebody to talk to. I'd love to be helpful to you. But whoever you are, whoever God's calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for a second sermon coming down the hillside. Thank you that your kingdom is bigger and more beautiful and sweeter and eternal than every other option this world has to offer. But it is the sinlessness of your kingdom that makes your kingdom so special. And that's a sinlessness I don't have. So thank you for being infinitely kind. dependent upon your kindness. I can't breathe without your kindness. Help me rest in that kindness even now as I try to, in my weak way, emulate that kindness. Father, for those here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known? Be kind today. Open eyes to see and ears to hear. Draw men and women into your good, otherworldly kingdom. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.